Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hi, I'm Brett Amron. And I'm Jeff Bast, and this is The Practice Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about clawbacks. And what we're seeing now is an uptick due to the coronavirus and a lot of the lockdowns. We're seeing a significant uptick in business insolvency, and we're starting to see an uptick in business bankruptcy filings. And with that uptick, we're also going to expect to follow that trend, a series of clawback claims. And so, Brett, you want to explain to our audience what clawback claims are and when they can expect those to come? Yeah, so mostly clawback claims, as everyone has heard of it in articles and news reports, they're what's called fraudulent transfer claims or preference claims. And those are transfers that are made by typically a company, sometimes an individual that files bankruptcy before they file bankruptcy. Preferences are paying one creditor, preferring one creditor over another. That's when you owe somebody money as a debt, typically. And fraudulent transfers are, you know, there's two kinds. One is making transfers to certain creditors with the actual intent to hinder, delay, or defraud other creditors, or you're making payment to a creditor and didn't receive reasonable equivalent value in exchange, you're insolvent. I mean, I know it's a lot of technical terms, but those are generally what those kinds of claims are. And what we're going to see, as Jeff said, right, we've got the increase in filings now, and we think there's going to be more as it comes or as we've heard, right? Not just from us, but from a lot of people. There's going to be a lot more filings coming at the end of this year, next year. But what happens is, and a lot of people don't know, is when you file bankruptcy, it's actually the start of a process. It is not the end. And so we call the litigation tail, and that could take up to two years before, whether it be a creditor's committee or a fiduciary, a trustee in bankruptcy, a receiver or an assignee files, commences the litigation to avoid any of these transfers, right? And I guess the question then is, Jeff, what can people do, right? What can people do? And we can talk about the detail of what these transfers are, But as an example, before we get into what defenses there are, let's say before my company, ABC Corp, filed bankruptcy, I owed Jeff a million dollars and I owed creditor Ben a million dollars. And I decided within the 90 days before bankruptcy filing that I'm going to pay Jeff a half a million dollars on the debt I owed. Because you like me more. Because I like you more, of course. Right. And neither Ben nor Jeff are secured. They don't have collateral and they're unsecured creditors. And so I just pay, instead of splitting that 500,000, 250 to 250, I just paid Jeff all 500. That's the classic preferential transfer. You preferred one creditor over the other. And the theory of preferential transfers is just that, that a debtor prefers one creditor, perhaps it's an insider or an influential creditor, somebody who's important. Or perhaps it could be a creditor whose debts are guaranteed. So the insider has an interest in paying those down. But payments to or for the benefit of a creditor that are preferential during that 90 days before the bankruptcy are recoverable. Yeah. And so what could companies do, right? There's some things that companies could do. And sometimes it's completely out of their control that are receiving this money from somebody that owes them money, like what can they do to protect themselves in the event that this company ultimately files bankruptcy? 
Well, let's add to the fact pattern the other circumstance, which is a pretty common one where businesses are doing business. You know, I always like the easy one is I hire a roofing company at my house and they put a $50,000 roof on my house. And at the end, the owner says, you know what, just cut the check to me, make it payable to me. And I won't charge you taxes or whatever he says. It gives you some reason why you should pay it to him. Well, I pay it to him. And then the roofing company ends up in bankruptcy. Well, when the trustees looking through the books and records and sees that they did a job at the Bast household, they're not going to see a payment coming in. And I'm going to say, yeah, but I paid him. Well, I received a fraudulent transfer because I got $50,000 worth of value from the company and I didn't pay them. And that's the classic fraudulent transfer. And so the answer to your question about what can business owners do is, first and foremost, make sure you're getting paid by the right party and you're paying the right party. And then this happens a lot with affiliated companies. Oftentimes, vendors, suppliers, customers aren't really sure which entity they're paying. They might have signed a contract with ABC Corp and they're told to make the payment to XYZ Corp or it's something much closer, ABC Inc. or ABC LLC. And so they may not even be aware. It's important to be aware that you're paying the right party. That's number one. I hear you, Jeff, but I'm a company and Brett owes me a million dollars. He's paying me a half a million dollars. Should I not take it? We always get this call from clients who are in that scenario before they get the payment. My advice is always get the money. I'd rather you get the money, but you should recognize that this company is insolvent or on the verge of insolvency. If you have win that they're going to end up in bankruptcy, we get the call. We're dealing with this big vendor, big customer. They owe us a lot of money. We heard they might file. They're offering to make a payment, but I'm worried about a preference risk. And I say, you should be worried, but let's get the money. Get the money and then recognize that you're going to probably get asked to give at least some of it back. But why is that fair? I mean, I'm still owed or you're still owed a half a million dollars. You're only getting paid a half a million dollars. You're still a creditor of this company. So let me understand I'm not going to get paid all of the money I'm owed, and yet I still may have to pay back money that I got paid? Right. That's right. I'm still owed money. (laughs) I didn't get paid in full, and what I did get, I'm getting asked to give back, and that's 100% right, and it's 100% unfair. And the system is designed to pick up the claims of just creditors who were preferred. And so the intent was, if certain creditors were treated unfairly, let's bring all the money back and then we'll distribute it equitably. But what ends up happening in reality is they sue everybody, not just the ones who are actually preferred. And the money oftentimes goes to lining the pockets of the lawyers and trustees and parties out there. And I admit that comment may not be popular among our practitioners, but that is the reality of a lot of preference actions. And so in some cases, you'll even see creditors' committees elect not to pursue preference actions for that very reason. But the problem that we have when we're representing defendants, targets of those actions, is explaining to them that here's a claim, that they're liable for a claim where they did absolutely nothing wrong. And the way we typically explain it is it's purely a mathematical analysis. Did you get paid? Did you get paid during this period? Is it more than you would have gotten in a liquidation? And was the debtor insolvent? pure math. And on the fraudulent transfer side, did you get paid and did you get more than the company received in return, whether you did anything wrong or not? It's a tough concept to have to convey to clients who didn't get paid in full and did nothing, absolutely nothing wrong. Yeah. I mean, I think that to reiterate what you highlighted, and that is that bankruptcy is a court of equity, right? 
And the idea is to try to treat everybody equitably. All the creditors that are in like categories should be paid pro rata, should be paid evenly across the board, and no creditor should be preferred over another. And that's the idea behind bankruptcy. It's very hard to explain that to clients. And I get it. I totally understand it. It's statutory. And that's the idea behind it. But as Jeff said, sometimes the way cases are run, (laughs) that idea gets muddled with what actions are pursued and how much money is recovered and where does that money go? Does it actually go to pay creditors or not? And that's the concern, right? When committees or trustees make those decisions and whether or not to pursue those claims. But certainly it is within their authority and power to, in fact, pursue those claims. The question is, is there going to be money there to pay creditors at the end of the day in order to make sure that people get money? And that's the whole point of the bankruptcy is to get people, creditors, rightful creditors paid. And so that's a hard pill for a lot of targets, a lot of those who receive money, a lot of creditors to swallow. And I completely understand it, but that's going to happen. No question about it. Number one, we talked about the preferences, but there's also these fraudulent transfer claims, which again, is an even harder pill for people to swallow because it's like, wait, 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 wait. First of all, you're accusing me of fraud. No. They don't like the word fraud. They don't like the word fraud. That's the name of the claim, you know, fraudulent conveyance, fraudulent transfer. And then we always have to explain the capital F, the small F, the actual intent versus constructive. But as you said, with preferences, same thing with fraudulent transfers, right? Which is, it is not the transferee, the party that received the funds, whose intent or actions are really at issue here. That only comes into play on any defenses in terms of whether or not certain defenses are available to them. And fraudulent transfers, obviously, there's 548 in the bankruptcy code, but each state typically has fraudulent transfer statutes that come into play under 544 of the bankruptcy code as well. And so to extend the statute of limitations and actually the look back period for the ability to claw back, right? 548 is two years and state, Florida, for example, is four years. And I know, I think New York is six years and there's some other states that have different look back periods. So, and this depends upon the economic condition of the company before the filing, looking back two years, four years, and candidly for preferences, same thing. It's 90 days for everyone, one year for any transfers to insiders. I know I kind of jumped back and forth, but the fraudulent transfer is a harder pill to swallow and it's a little more nuanced. No? Right. Yeah. What people should be aware is that there are defenses to these claims and the way they come about is the trustees or whoever is prosecuting the claim. Typically, it's a trustee. They're going to send a demand letter before they file suit. And we're often the ones sending those demand letters. And it's what's remarkable is how often in response to those letters, we'll get a check. Some people will just send a check. Some businesses, owners would send a check. And so First, our number one piece of advice is if you get a clawback letter, don't send a check. Just call a lawyer. Call your lawyer. Talk to somebody. You may have very solid defenses. Oftentimes, those claims will settle. They'll often settle at a discount. The overwhelming majority of them settle because the law and the facts are often so well settled. Often, I should say. Not always. There are parts of the law that are not well settled. But there are a number of defenses. One of those, if Brett talked about four-year look back on fraudulent transfers, one of those is solvency or insolvency. 
that claim relies upon the insolvency of the company unless there was actual fraud, a Ponzi scheme or some fraudulent scheme taking place. And so if the company was, for example, maybe they had audited financial statements at that time, and there may be evidence that indicates the solvency of the company at the time of the transfers. So that's one place we look. Yeah. So I'll temper what you said a little bit, Jeff, which is, listen, it's a business decision. If you get a demand letter and you want to send a check back, it's a business decision on your part. But what Jeff's point is, and I think it's a solid one is, look, reach out to somebody you know that may deal with this stuff or has dealt with this stuff before, whether it's a lawyer or another person in business and say, look, have you gotten one of these? What are my options here? Do I have defenses to this? Here's what the situation was in terms of our business interaction with this company. This is what we did provide to the company. Do I have defenses to this? And so I think that's a valid point before you just simply get the letter and write a check very quickly. But sometimes it's a business decision, right? If it's a demand for $10,000 or $15,000 or something like that, I mean, it may be something that you say, you know what, makes sense to stroke a check or let me see if I can negotiate a lower amount. But again, depending upon how the business was conducted, if all the payments were made to you in the regular course of business and you were providing value to the company that paid you, well, then you know what? You have a right to that payment and there are defenses. And the question is, was the company solvent as well? And that's something you can figure out whether or not there was a solvency analysis, which can be very complex and maybe very simple. Again, depending upon what happened, right? As Jeff said, it could have been a Ponzi scheme or a fraud throughout, or it could have been a legitimate business. And the question is, was it insolvent? How far back did the solvency go? And was it insolvent at the time of the transfer or did the transfer cause the insolvency? So take a look and really kind of figure out what the relationship was between you and the company that paid you what did you provide in exchange for the payment? Did you provide those goods? You have proof of that, right? Document everything. That's one way that you can protect yourself in the event that you get a demand like this is, oh, I've got stacks of paper evidencing all of the transactions that we engaged in and either the work I provided or the goods that I shipped. And that's extremely helpful in defense and making sure that you keep as best you can the company that owes you money timely when they pay pursuant to the terms of your agreement with them or your course of business and make sure you get paid by the company that owes you money and that you're providing the services or the goods too. Because if you don't, if you get paid by another company and that company files bankruptcy, the company that paid you, but you provided your goods or service to another company, well, then you're going to have a problem. And that's what's called wrong payor, right? In a lot of cases... A lot of fraudulent transfer preference cases are based on wrong payor, meaning that the wrong company paid you and your defenses in that case are extremely limited. For sure. But the point is there are defenses on preferences. There are statutory defenses, not just solvency, which is one defense in Brett's right. Solvency or insolvency are difficult to prove. They often will require expert testimony. Each side has their own expert and that can be costly and time-consuming, but the defenses are available. But I also wanted to comment on one other thing you said, Brett, and that is you mentioned the idea of creditors talking to each other. And I do think that's a great idea. And an even better idea is when they unite and retain counsel together. 
So we have often times in cases where trustees are sending out masses of these demand letters represented groups of targets. And so when they organize, if we represent, say, 10 preference targets and we're going to challenge insolvency, well, not only can they divide their cost 10 ways for one lawyer, but the cost of an expert witness can be divided 10 ways and you get a lot more leverage. And in these cases, the trustees have tremendous leverage because they're filing a thousand of these cases. So their cost per case is de minimis, whereas each defendant has to hire their own lawyer and they bear the burden of the expense themselves. And so uniting, if you know creditors, if businesses get these letters and they know other creditors, it's a great idea to talk to them. One, to get a sense of what they did, like you said, Brett. Two, to find out how are other people settling? Are they paying? And three, I really think this is the most important, the opportunity to retain joint counsel. And there are going to be individual facts and issues that will need to be addressed by the lawyers, but there's a lot of commonality where fees can be shared. So, Yeah. And I think it's good from that perspective, from the target's perspective, but I also think it could be potentially good from a trustee or fiduciary perspective if there's groups of targets who get together and hire counsel so that you can deal with one particular counsel related to those cases each case is probably has some different sets of facts that can be applied. And so I don't think necessarily one defense is going to apply across the board, but I do think that there's probably some benefit in getting together. Obviously, there is a cost issue on defense. And keep in mind that you mentioned the battling experts and insolvency. It is the trustees, it is the fiduciary's burden, right, to prove insolvency but typically you want someone to come in as an expert to counter that to the extent you can poke holes in that analysis. It's just a fact. And so again, that's where except joining forces, well, right. Except during except the 90 during days, the 90 days, the days. Right. It doesn't matter because exactly. they're presumed, although it is a rebuttable presumption. Yeah. I don't want to get the detail of that, but it is a rebuttable presumption. That being said, I mean, getting together a group, obviously you can defray some of the cost of counsel and an expert on insolvency. And if you don't do that, then you have to kind of look at it again from a business perspective. How much is this going to cost me? Do I need to hire an expert? Do I not? And all those things. So listen, I think at the end of the day, as we've seen when there's been an uptick in insolvency filings, there is the litigation tail, which could take up to a couple of years after a company files bankruptcy in order to even start And then it could take another year or two after that. So if a company files bankruptcy and you're a creditor or you did business with this company, be prepared that even if you don't hear anything for a year or even maybe close to two, they have two years to commence these things, that there still may be a claim that you may still get a demand letter or you may still get a complaint filed against you if you did business and you received payments out of these companies. So it's going to take some time. Yeah, it's something to think about, and I don't want to overly complicate it, but for creditors of businesses who have filed or are about to file, the other thing you need to think about is if you file a claim in the case, by filing that claim, you also may be consenting to the jurisdiction of the bankruptcy court for litigation. So if you receive a fraudulent transfer and you file a claim, you may be exposing yourself to or limiting the ways in which you might litigate that fraudulent transfer claim. So Again, I reiterate the importance of consulting with qualified, experienced bankruptcy counsel when you are a creditor and have dealt with a business that has filed or is about to file. So just to recap, if you're dealing with a business that 
may be on the brink of insolvency, number one thing, make sure you're getting paid by the right party. I tell people to do that all the time. Even today, if I have the roofer and they ask that and say, I say, sorry, I can only pay the party. That's a good practice anyways. Yeah. To jump in on that, not to break up the list, but to jump in on that, we're like bankruptcy lawyers, clients come to us all the time. Like, oh, I'm just going to pay you out of this company or I'm going to pay you out of this. And we said, no, 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 we can't do that. We're perhaps the only lawyers because <laughs> we know, we know what could potentially right. come down the pike. And so it's super important, as Jeff said. Yeah. So get paid by the right party, check your contract, make sure you're getting paid in the course and according to the terms of the contract as often as you can. And one other important fact that we didn't mention that is, and I've seen this before where clients get the check, they're worried about insolvency. So they hang on to the check and then they call their lawyer. And so the trigger date, we've talked about these time periods, 90 days, four years, all those trigger dates are generally generally driven by when the date the check clears. And so when you get a payment, you're hoping that time passes before they end up in bankruptcy. If you get a check and they file 91 days later, your payment, the payment you got is outside the 90-day period unless you held the check and you deposit it during the 90 days. So when you get payments and you're dealing with these insolvent companies, deposit the check right away. Don't hang on to those checks. It's a minor issue, but it's sometimes it's these cases come down to a difference of days. And the other thing Brett mentioned is documents, maintaining your documents, keeping good records, always good practice. Thanks for that, Jeff. And thanks for the conversation. Thank you. Hopefully I, none of our listeners are targeted target of clawbacks, but when they are, they knew who to call. Credit Amron. For more information on this show and other resources, visit fastamron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Fast Amron.